This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, definitely an easy day for Lyft shares to make their debut. In fact, the stock, while off their highs, uh, they're still up about 13.5%. 81 and change is where we see uh, the latest trade when it comes to Lyft. They were up as much as 23%. Let's get into the IPO today. Let's break it down with Olivia Zaleski. She's deals reporter at Bloomberg News. We find her in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. And then we've got uh, John Erlkman. He's anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open. We find John in Toronto. So, Olivia, we've all been anticipating this. Lyft's got to be happy about this first day of trading. Yeah, it was a nice day for the company. They're all gathered in L.A. with their board members and key bankers right now um, at a driver center there. You know, the shares opened at $87, which was like a, a nice little pop that they got off the original IPO price of $72. Um, it was about 21% above the IPO price. Um, you know, interesting couple of weeks for Lyft because originally they came out at 62 to $68 a share, and they had so much demand just two days after opening and presenting to investors um, that they eventually ended up adjusting the price range from 70 to $72 and then ended up deciding on $72 a share. I love that point that you you um, addressed there, Olivia. And John, come on in on that. So, you know, they raised their price, their offering price. There was so much demand. Is that just a case of a lack of new issues in the overall marketplace, right? We haven't had a lot of IPOs as of late. Or is it because Lyft has got so much potential that investors all wanted a piece of it? I think there is excitement right now, Carol, about this self-driving car world. And there hasn't really been an easy way to play it through one company so far. I mean, we'll uh, snap our fingers and we'll have Uber as a public company as well. But we've talked so much about this trend of ride hailing and self-driving. And now it's a bigger reality for investors. Whether this holds, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, it is pretty amazing. I love IPO days because you have so many different storylines. You can talk about how a business got to this point. And in John Zimmer and Logan Green, you've got yeah. two guys who met on Facebook in 2007. And here we are 12 years later, and they're leading us into the future with their $24 billion company. I don't know if it lasts in terms of the valuation of the company, but I do know that the excitement is real, and that's palpable when you look at the stock move today. Right. We've got, now got a company with a market cap of over $23 billion. Olivia, you know, one of the things that we've all been talking about here, certainly on Bloomberg Radio, uh, is just... This is still a company, even though it's been around for a few years, a lot of years, in fact, um, it still doesn't make money. It's not profitable. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, they lost um, $911 million last year on $2.2 billion of revenue. Um, You know, they obviously that came out in the prospectus. It didn't seem like anyone really cared. Investors were (laughs) still really interested. Um, You know, so it speaks a lot to these money losing tech companies that uh, that everyone's still excited about. And I think uh, Lyft and its. crew of bankers were very smart in how they presented this company. Uh, and they they really pressed hard on the theme that Lyft and ride-hailing is 
replacing car ownerships, mm-hmm. uh, car ownership among millennials. And this is a huge trend. So they also, you know, a lot of people ask me about how does Lyft uh, fare against Uber? And I think they really position themselves as not competing against Uber, but competing against car ownership. I think that's a great point. I just hosted a webcast uh, for the magazine, and it was all about have we hit peak car because you don't see, you know, teenagers aren't uh, going out and getting driver's license like they used to. Uh, There's a lot of numbers uh, that are showing that maybe we've topped out in terms of car sales. John, how does this factor in uh, your into your thinking when it comes to Lyft's prospects? Well, it's very real. It's very tangible. I think we spent so much time focusing on Lyft's valuation and less on the fact that for GM, the brightest spot for investors seems to be their cruise unit. Um, Anything that the traditional automakers can do to get that focus back in gear is, is, is very important. I do think it is worth, though, looking at what's happened. You know, hype cycles are real. Um, we've seen that with IPOs, that with companies that were challenged on, on the profit side. We saw that with Snapchat's parent, Snap Inc. Right. And today, that company is uh, has a valuation that's about half what it was when it went when it went public. And if you think back to the you know the days of Apple going public or Microsoft going public or Google. Uh, even Facebook, these are companies that were very profitable, um, and so they didn't have to spend their public life proving that they could become profitable. So I think the next four to eight quarters, you know, the next couple of years for Lyft are going to be really important. Prove it that you can make this business model work, even as more and more people are using ride hailing and ride sharing. Yeah. Olivia, what's crucial to this company, this business model working going forward? Because if we're talking about less people owning cars, they're going to need to take more Lyfts and more Ubers. Um, Although as as people in the suburbs keep pushing back at me and saying, "Uh, come on, you still need a car if you're living out there. You know, what is it crucial that we start to see in those financials? Yeah, I think absolutely they they need to focus on getting their margins right. Um, You know, a a huge problem for them is keeping drivers happy. You know, I've heard statistics that uh, um, only uh, 4% of drivers will end up actually staying on the platform after a year, which is just a phenomenal um, statistic. Mm -hmm. And so especially with Uber, you know, it's going to be really important for them to keep drivers happy, keep them on the platform. You know, in an interview this morning, um, uh, Zimmer and uh, uh, Logan Green both said that they actually didn't see uh, driverless cars really coming on board for uh, a decade or more. Um, So it's not like they're just going to be able to turn everything around with driverless cars. Yeah, exactly. And listen, investors aren't patient. So if they don't like the financials, they will certainly weigh in when it comes to the share price. Uh, So we will certainly watch this trade over the next uh, few weeks and few months. Hey, guys, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Olivia Zaleski, deals reporter at Bloomberg News in our 960 studio in San Francisco. Our thanks to John Ehrlichman as well, anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open. We find him in Toronto. Lift shares, though, they are up about 10 bucks. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So check this out, everyone. Uh, More than 1,400 CEOs left their position last year. That's 25% more than in 2017, just shy of the highest annual CEO departures recorded. And that happened back in 2008. Remember that time, of course. CEOs under more pressure than ever from their first day on the job. In the strategy section of Business Week magazine this week, a guide on how to deal with pressure, including tips on taking risks. Jim Thornton is Business Week freelance uh, writer. 
He wrote uh, the story in the magazine this week. It's called The Chief Executive's Guide to Taking Risks That Grow Companies. He joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Uh, Joe, nice to have you. Uh, Jim, excuse me. Nice to have you here with us. Tell me a little bit about how you approach this story because, yeah, I think it's safe to say that we live in an environment where if something's not going right at a company, either through, certainly if you're a publicly held company, activists <laughs> will be knocking at your door. You'll see it in the share price. Social media also, very quick uh, to uh, react to moves by CEOs that uh, folks don't like. You see it play out on social media. Yes, uh, I think what interested me in this is that on the risk-taking spectrum, you can, if you take too much risk, if a CEO just, you know, is kind of taking lunatic risks, you get like Lehman Brothers and the collapse of the global economy. On the other hand, if you are too conservative, a famous example might be Kodak that invented digital photography, but decided that pursuing it would cut into their uh, massive uh, market share of regular film. They, they, yeah. they decided not to, to pursue it, and Kodak kind of went out of business. So you got to hit the sweet spot in between the two um, of those those extremes. Right. There's a great line in the story. Somewhere between lunatic risk-taking and paralyzing risk aversion exists a sweet spot of prudent risk-taking. Um, what about power? Like, is that a handicap when it comes to making good or bad choices when it comes to risk? Well, there were a number of items that I um, was unable to fit into the story because of space. And one of the interesting studies I came across was that, that for um, very consequential decisions, you would think that CEOs would have an easier time than the normal person. But it turns out they actually have a much harder time. So they're just kind of racking their brains and just going back and forth and all that sort of thing, whereas a lower-ranking employee might say, well, eh, go this way or right. go that way. Well, what's interesting, too, is you, you, know, you, you stress, and I think this is kind of good for people in general, to acknowledge your temperament, kind of know who you are, how you react, um, because that really can play into biasness or biases, if you will, right, in terms of how you respond to things. Yeah, it's interesting because I, when I first went, started researching this, I kind of thought that, well, risk tolerance versus risk aversion is pretty much an inherent character trait. Um, and there, there is some truth to that, that um, some people are like born risk takers and others are, you know, just very stodgy, conservative, don't, don't want to do anything types. But there's also a lot of extrinsic factors that will modify your willingness to take a risk. And it turns out that CEOs are on that spectrum of, of uh, uh, character mm-hmm. risk-taking. They're, they're pretty much like everyone else. They may be slightly more inclined to take risks, but right. there's plenty of them that don't want to take risks. What, what I and thought... So, when, can I, I want to just jump ahead to one thing because I think it's really relevant today. We look at a lot of political leaders around the world. Narcissism, um, the importance of that. You have to have a little bit of narcissism, right, to be a good leader. Yeah, a little bit, but a little bit goes a long way. Uh, if you have too much of it, one of the, another really interesting 
studies that they these two researchers looked at what they call capability cues, mm-hmm. um, which are on on the one hand they could be things like objective performance, like stock price and sales and that sort of thing, and then on the other side of the spectrum are sort of softer things like you know press coverage and awards that you might win and that sort of thing, and so then they looked at the uh, CEOs that were sort of high in narcissistic traits versus CEOs that were low in narcissistic traits. And they found that the narcissists pretty much just ignore objective measures. They don't care. But they are extremely motivated by the, you know, press coverage and that sort of right. thing. Right. Well, Whereas I got... Other I, types... Sorry. No, that's okay. We're actually just running out of time, and it, we're just going to kind of guide people because it's in the magazine. They can find it also at Bloomberg.com uh, and also on the Bloomberg Terminal because there's lots of good advice uh, I think that all leaders could certainly put to work. Uh, Jim Thornton, thank you, though, for some time on this Friday. He's freelance writer at Bloomberg Business Week. It's in the strategies section of the magazine, so do be sure to look into it. Pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure you know about this, facing increasing pushback from Congress and the Trump administration on how much it charges for medicine. Let's get some thoughts on the impending battle. On the phone in Norwalk, Connecticut, is Tom Kotler. He's CEO at Health Prize Technologies. It's a company with an engagement platform to incent customers to maintain healthy habits, including staying on top of taking their medications. Health Prize, by the way, works with such companies as Pfizer, Shire, Walgreens, Milan, Valiant, and more, including drug makers and other retailers. Tom, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. I'd love for you to tell our audience, our listeners, a little bit more about what your company specifically does. Yeah, so we, um, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. We have a software as a service platform we sell to uh, pharmaceutical companies to build branded experiences for patients to get them to get educated about their condition and the uh, value of staying on therapy and that motivate patients to stay on their medication. You may know or not know that medication non-adherence is actually the single most costly problem in all of healthcare, responsible, according to the New England Healthcare Institute, for $290 billion of otherwise avoidable medical spending each year in the United States. It is also the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., so it's a significant problem. So anybody who's got who's had an, uh, you know, an elderly parent or grandparent knows how tough it can be to kind of get uh, them sometimes to adhere to uh, the medications that they need to take. It's interesting. You use things like education, gamification, uh, behavioral economics, and incentives. What specifically? Because I do try to think about... I don't know that my dad would have like played into gamification. So tell me a little bit about more the specifics and how you how you make it work. Sure. So let me. So, so you said something about older people, you know, not sort of taking their meds. Yeah. This is a problem for every patient in every condition. Uh, cancer patients don't take their medication as prescribed. The number one reason that organ donors reject their transplanted organs is not taking their immunosuppressants. Uh, p- patients blind in one eye. Um, uh, don't put drops in their other eye because of their uh, <laughs> their mm. ophthalmological disease. Mm-hmm. This is a problem literally for every drug in every indication in every country in the world with every patient population. It is principally, in our view, a problem of human psychology. People just hate taking their medication, and a lot of them don't know why it's important for them to do so, how much it's going to cost them, how long am I supposed to be on it, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so our platform engages people like a loyalty program um, with with 
fun and engaging information uh, using uh, concepts from gamification, which is not a game, but the mechanics of games uh, that get people to want to play games, uh, notions of mastery and competition and um, achievement and the like, um, to get them to engage on the platform, to get educated about their condition and why it's important for them to stay in therapy and otherwise uh, follow their treatment protocol. And um, we've run, yep. No, no, no. And I was, no, forgive me. Please continue. So we've run programs in almost every primary care condition and a number of specialty conditions and achieved significant results uh, and are now starting to measure our ability not just to get people to stand therapy to actually, but actually to uh, improve their outcomes and reduce the total cost of care. Well, that's what I want to get into. So how does this help in terms of, right, the battle that's we're anticipating? We've seen the Trump administration um, time and time again talk about the high cost of prescription medic- medication. So how does what you're doing kind of play into potentially the cost? of pharmaceuticals. So what's really interesting is we hear all the time people don't take their medication because they cost too much, but you can reduce uh, medication cost to zero, um, and patients still don't take their drugs. Uh, It's not that there aren't a lot of people for whom the cost of medications is just unbearable or unfordable, but the fact of the matter is, is that every good piece of research ever done shows that if you reduce the cost of patients' medication to zero, you lift adherence or people staying on therapy but not by very much and not for very long. In European countries where there are no copays of any kind and all drugs are free to the patient, we have virtually the exact same rates of non-adherence as we do in the United States. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, in terms of you know, drug pricing, um, if, we, if, we, if we reduce prices, there are a number of people who will be helped by this and will probably be more adherent. But the fact of the matter is, is it's not a solution to the adherence problem. Though I would say this, um, and I'm a big supporter of the pharmaceutical industry. No industry has saved more lives than the pharmaceutical industry. Um, living on their old business model of, li- of, of raising prices on a product right. that does not change, it does not get better, faster, smaller, whatever, like your cell phone does all the time, um, year over year over year, uh, is, is unsustainable. Right. And your thinking is, or your point is, that... Just cutting the cost of medications isn't going to improve the situation. The point is people need to take their medications. If they do that, that ultimately will lead to lower health care costs, correct? Exactly. And this has been proven over and over again. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, patients that are adherent to their medication cost less and get better outcomes. From the pharmaceutical company's perspective, um, and we've shown this with research that we've done, and in fact, Credit Suisse, did a, a research note uh, that we prompted and worked on with them um, showing uh, the possibilities for pharma in terms of increased revenue and increased earnings per share with an enterprise-wide focus on medication adherence. And without getting huge lifts in, in adherence, these companies could show significant revenue and earnings per share growth, in some cases up to 40% EPS growth a year. Right. Hey, there is nothing else they can do, including price increases, that's going to get them that. Just got about 40 seconds left here. What about a tiered strategy? So if you don't participate in some kind of adherence program, you're going to pay a higher price. If you do, you pay a lower price. Is, would that have the same effect? And really just got about 30 seconds here. Sorry. That's a super interesting question. I mean, I think I think personal responsibility is a, another part of our healthcare system that's mm-hmm. really lacking. So I'm sort of a supporter of, of something like that. What I would say is this, I think... The 800-pound gorilla in the room, and no one ever talks about this, 
is that a significant portion of pharmaceutical spend in the United States right. is a complete waste of money. It's fascinating. Don't stand. Yeah, it's a fa- no. It's a fascinating part of this discussion when we're trying to reduce healthcare costs. Hey, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Tom Kotler, CEO at Health Prize Technologies, joining us uh, this Friday on the phone from Norwalk, Connecticut. So. We're definitely focused on the big unicorns starting to go public this year. Lyft, of course, today making its public trading debut. But uh, how about the unicorns happening around the globe? And that includes in Africa. Here with that, Jake Bright is back with us. He is uh, a contributor and advisor to TechCrunch. He's the innovation, uh, forgive me, innovation lead at MIT's Legatum Center. He's also author of The Next Africa. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You've got a lot of titles. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, just a few. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, you know, here we are focused on what's happening in the U.S. market, understandably slow, because it's kind of been a quiet uh, IPO trade for, it feels like, a while, and now we're starting to see some of that come out. But you've got um, an, an African unicorn. Tell me about this company. Yeah, I've been covering Africa's tech scene uh, for about a decade now. Um, you walked in and you said, you know, I remember having a conversation with Kathleen Hayes a few yes, years ago. Well, I think one of my, my first media spot was on Africa, and we talked about the possibility that we could see unicorns and IPOs in Africa. So it was all hypothetical then, but now we have one. So Pan-African e-commerce startup, which is called Jumia, uh, which has operations in 14 countries, became the continent's first unicorn in 2016. And two weeks ago, they filed to become the first startup from Africa to go public on a global exchange, and they'll launch uh, on the New York Stock Exchange sometime in coming weeks. Got a million questions. First yeah. of all, tell us what this company does. Well, they started off doing kind of plain Jane e-commerce. Yeah. Um, they now have multiple verticals. So they've built out into services. They do travel. They have classifieds. Uh, but an interesting narrative about Jumia, and, and by the way, they were founded by um, two Africans, um, Tunde Kehinde, but it's a mix of Africans and Europeans who actually manage Jumia. But what they did is, you know, you're going into this big space, which a lot of um, Africa's economies, including where Jumia is headquartered in Nigeria, which mm-hmm. is the largest economy now, right. it's a huge informal economic space, which means there's lots of stuff going on, but it's off the grid. It's not taxed, it's not digital. So Jumia has been around, I think, since 2012, and what they've been doing is both simultaneously creating an infrastructure while trying to drive scale around infrastructure. So they had to create their own payments platform. Right. They started their own delivery service. So a lot of the things that e-commerce companies take for granted in the United States, those 3PL services and things on the side – they had to create some of those themselves. What I love about this is I do wonder about these emerging markets, Jake. We've been talking a lot about China and, yes, emerging market, but also a very advanced emerging market. Right, I don't even right. know if it classifies as emerging anymore. But, you know, how they do uh, consumers, everything's done on your phone, right? You don't have credit right. cards and so on right. and so forth. I do love to focus on the emerging markets because I think out of necessity, they have to come up with apps and situations and applications and infrastructure to cover a lot of things because they're starting from a disadvantage. And I do wonder how what they're doing is ultimately going to shape what we are going to be doing in the future. Well, that's a central narrative of a lot of my coverage of African tech. We haven't seen things exported, innovation models exported yet that I could say from Jumia, but especially in African fintech. uh, I've been tracking now companies that are expanding abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, And basically the expansion comes right out of what you're saying in that 
the, the problems they were solving in local African context have application in other emerging markets. So you're seeing some Nigerian fintech companies like Paga Payments uh, look at Mexico. Um, you're seeing Tarragon, which is a data analytics company that's found ways to track consumer data in places like Nigeria expand into Asia. So yeah, there are innovation models I think that will be that are being exported, and it comes out of solving those local p- solutions or problems. And it comes because it, because of those problems, nobody would ever thought about those problems in some kind of a strategy room or engineering lab in the United States. Is it interesting too that you know that they're listing on the New York Stock Exchange? It's a massive deal for for African tech. What's um, the size? So we're talking how much? They're, they're valued. Of- it's still not announced yet, but we're looking at probably a billion dollars. Um, but I mean, I'll just give you some perspective. This is a young startup ecosystem. I mean, even the numbers, there's not even really, you know, accurate accepted numbers for how much VC goes in. Right. But you're talking about like maybe a billion dollars a year in VC. Um, so in terms of in dollar, total, in total, right? That's how young this is. So in terms of dollar monetary valuations, African tech is tiny by like Shenzhen or Silicon Valley standards. But when you look at volumes, in terms of startup formation, right. in terms of growth, year-over-year growth, you're looking at 300 400% growth. So it's, it's growing faster than anywhere else, but it's really, really a young ecosystem. And there's been almost no major performance events so far. But right? It, but it, right, right, exactly. But it's evolving. It's evolving and things like this. Um, I mean, I'll caution, it's going to be hard to get $100 million companies. Like, that's how much revenue Jimmy is generating. Yeah. But it's giving a lot of attention to other VCs to look at other things in the startup ecosystem. Yeah, exactly, right? The focus, uh, everybody's watching what's happening. Jake, thank you so much. You always give us a check on what's going on over in Africa. Jake Bright, he's contributor uh, and advisor to TechCrunch in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So stocks climbing to round out a strong quarter. Treasuries falling amid hopes for a trade deal between the world's two largest economies. Uh, we got a lot going on, but we certainly have uh, a rally underway as we get ready to wrap up that first quarter. Let's get to the drive to the close. Dave Donabedian is chief investment officer at CIBC Private Wealth Management. $50 billion in assets under management. Dave joining us on the phone from Baltimore. So Dave, happy Friday. Uh, certainly a risk on trade today. And we're getting ready to wrap up uh, a first quarter. Who would have thunk <laughs> back in uh, late December that this is maybe where we might have been? Well, it's remarkable, really. We're going to, you know, in a few minutes, close the books here on the best first quarter of the year in 21 years since mm-hmm. uh, 1998, at least for the uh, the S and P 500. And it's, you know, partly due to just a bounce back from probably a, an uh, overreacted uh, sell off in the fourth quarter, but also, you know, another major factor has been the change in tone and messaging from the Federal Reserve. That's been huge. Well, this is what I wonder, whether it's technicals or fundamentals, you know, you know, emotions versus fundamentals, again, that's really um, underneath this trade here. Well, there's certainly been more, you know, risk on sentiment, even as the economic data has continued to be rather, uh, rather sluggish. I really do think that it is uh, 
you know, the change in tone from the Fed. It, it, you know, when you adjust down or when the market adjusts downward, its expectations for where interest rates are going to be, not just six months down the road, but a year and two years down the road, uh, that makes a, a big difference and, uh, you know, it supports a higher valuation in equities. Now, you think um, the global economy looks weak, but the second half looks better. How come? Yeah, I think it will be better. It clearly is weak now, including in, in the U.S. as we, we uh, you know, complete the first quarter. I, I think, though, when you look globally, you have to start with China, which has accounted for you know, the lion's share of, of global growth over the last decade. It clearly is in the midst of a slowdown, but you also see policy actions to try and counteract that. You've seen a 350 basis point drop in interest rates, uh, tax cuts both for households and businesses, accelerated infrastructure spending. Um, and so I, I think this will essentially work, at least on a cyclical basis, to um, uh, sort of stabilize the growth rate, maybe even improve it in China in the second half of the year. And of course, that has important knock-on effects for, for other parts of the world. So does that explain kind of why you are at the moment overweight equities versus the bond market? Yeah, we, we think that, uh, you know, even if you look between now and year-end, uh, we've obviously booked a 13% or so, you know, gain just in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to continue at that pace, but but we do think there's still some, you know, modest to moderate upside in equities, uh, you know, single-digit kind of uh, returns from here over the course of the year, because the earnings story, while it's going to start the year sluggish, much like the economy, is likely to improve as the year goes along. And I think there will be more confidence in that we are in an, an elongated economic expansion. You know, I hate I hate to throw this out because sometimes I feel like it's so simplistic, but I, I do wonder, and we keep hearing, you know, this more and more people, it feels like, say that we're kind of in this Goldilocks economy, right? And I feel like even the economic data points bear that out. We, you know, we might get a good one, then we don't get a good one. And, you know, next week's going to be an interesting one with the monthly jobs report to see how things play out uh, in that arena. But I do wonder if as a result of, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, that it kind of that it does keep the market in check and the economy in check, inflation in check, and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at this, you know, decade-long bull market, what has the backdrop really been? It's been slow growth, low inflation, low interest rates. The exception to that was was last year, right, where we had had you know the best economic growth year, uh, blowout earnings, and the, and the stock market went down. This year it looks more like a return to you know, call it 2% growth, 2% inflation, maybe a little less. And again, interest rates lower than, than anyone expected just uh, as, we, as we turned into the year. So uh, there is something to be said for balance. Yeah. So Dave, so if you're overweight equities, where specifically? Yeah, on a, on a uh, global basis, we're, we're overweight, you know, U.S. relative to benchmarks. Uh, and within the market, we are um, overweight in certain parts of the technology space mm-hmm. and the healthcare space. Uh, we're underweight, generally consumer staples and utilities. Uh, the, uh, you know, we're looking for companies with solid recurring revenue patterns. We find those in the tech and healthcare space. You don't really find growth at a reasonable price generally in the, the consumer staples and utilities. Uh, and then the other one that's interesting here is the financials, where we are uh, also overweight. Uh, obviously, that's been a you know a disappointing sector, but. Uh, the valuations are, are very inexpensive. Well, I do wonder if, you know, we, we constantly think um, the adage of lower rates, not good for net interest margin on the financials, what they, you know, loan out at and what they get um, uh, in terms of uh, 
deposits. And I just wonder, I'm looking at financials for the year. Yeah, they're near the bottom of the pack. They're still up about 7.8% for the year overall. But why is it, why is the equity universe of investors so negative on financials? Is it just I really, you know, there's yeah. been an awful lot of talk and focus on the yield curve yeah. as it pertains to the bond market and what it means for the overall stock market. But there's even been hyper focus as it as it impacts the the financials. So I think that's really created a lot of uh, negative negative sentiment for the particularly for the for the banks. You the think exact it's, issue you mentioned about net interest margin? You think it's misplaced? I, I think it, it you know it, it, it's a natural reaction in the short term, but I think it, it, it when you look at valuations, it's it's an overreaction, and, and you're going to see some pretty good earnings posted by by the banks. So you mentioned in the U.S. you like tech and healthcare, your underweight consumer staples and utilities. If you take a more global or international focus, non-U.S., what do you like? We like the I mean, big picture, we like the emerging markets better than the the developed markets simply because we think it's a better you know, growth at a reasonable price story. Uh, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about uh, a catalyst for improvement in, in the Chinese economy. You're certainly seeing the stock market there, perhaps act, act as a leading indicator to a better than a, a 20% bounce. But, uh, you know, generally we see the emerging market stocks, uh, I think the index PE is around 11, so certainly at a discount to the U.S., it's at a discount to the, the developed international markets as well. And I think we're going to see uh, better economic and earnings growth as the year progresses, and then more importantly, over the long term, these are the economies that are, are really going to generate the strongest growth as you get a burgeoning middle class right. and stronger overall economic growth. Dave, just about 30 seconds left here. The Lyft IPO um, at its highs was up 23% today. It's paired that back pretty dramatically. It's now just up about 9.8%, so kind of its lows of the session here, still higher. Uh, the IPOs coming to market, how they do, will tell you what, um, that it's a good, strong market, or these IPOs are trying to get in before things turn bad? And just got about 20 seconds here. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, it'll depend on the offering. I do think we're going to see the, the best year of IPO activity that we've had in this entire entire cycle. Generally, yeah. the, the quality of those coming to market are above average. So I think that augurs well that it's not uh, right. not the, the latter scenario. All right, Dave Donabedian. He's over at COIBC Private Wealth Management on the phone from Baltimore. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.